Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Thelma Schoonmaker. You can imagine what it must have been like to work with that kind of material. This is the first major feature film I ever worked on. And um, I went out to Hollywood and I told Scorsese, I don't know how to do this. You know, I know how to edit the movies you made before you went to Hollywood, but I don't know how to do this. And he said, don't worry, I'll, <laughs> I'll help you. Um, and uh, I fortunately found an assistant who sort of knew how to organize things the way feature films are supposed to be organized. But when the footage started coming in, I mean, it was just like pure gold. I've never, ever felt anything quite like it in my hands, I, I don't think. And uh, it was a great joy to work on it. Just Thank to you. back up a little bit, you did um, meet Marty at NYU and cut uh, Who's That Knocking in My Door, which was an independent feature. So talk about what happened in this in-between period. What, were you deciding not to be a feature film editor, and how did you get... No, no, not at all. We had all started in documentaries after uh, we left NYU. I was only there for a summer course, but Marty was a, a major there. We began making documentaries for uh, television and uh, helped Marty make uh, finish Who's That Knocking, which he had already begun, and helped people like Jim McBride finish... Uh, which film? Uh, it wasn't David Holzman's diary? Yes, David okay, yes. right. Then Woodstock just fell in on us, and we all went up and made it, and uh, Marty started working on it with us, and then went to Hollywood to bust in. And I couldn't work for him from that point on because I'd never joined the union. I hadn't had to. And out in Hollywood, they were telling him that I had to start as an apprentice and then an assistant, and seven years later, I would be able to edit. So I couldn't work for him for quite a few years. So a lot of films that people think I edited, I didn't. Taxi Driver, for example, <laughs> did not edit. The first film I edited for him as a major feature film was this one. And um, I don't know even how they got me in the union. I don't want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> somehow I got in. So um, from that point on, then I was able to work with him. But it wasn't that I didn't want to work with him. He kept calling me in it, and it was just impossible. The union wouldn't let me. So. Finally, on Raging Bull, he said to me, we figured out a way. Marsha Lucas was working a lot for him, uh, the uh, wife of George Lucas, but when George hit it big with Star Wars, she wanted to go back up and be with him in San Francisco and work on his film, so that's when Marty finally got somebody to do something. I think it was our producer, Erwin Winkler, who got it done. And Erwin Winkler produced the Rocky films. I yes. mean, I was thinking about the Rocky movies, which, and of course, Rocky won Best Picture in 1976 over Taxi Driver. <laughs> and I, so I wondered, is this like the revenge on, on Rocky? <laughs> but I did read that there were a lot of boxing movies coming out at that time, and that was one reason why the decision was made to shoot black and white. I mean, Marty said that one reason he made this black and white. Well, yes, I think he remembered actually seeing on television or in newsreels at, at the theater a lot of fight sequences and uh, coverage of fights, and they were always black and white in his mind. Then, actually, my husband, Michael Powell, the English film director, was brought down to see some footage of uh, Bob training. Bob trained for two years. Uh, he could have fought as a middleweight. So my husband was looking at the videotapes of, of the training sessions, and he said to Marty, there's something wrong about the red gloves. And hmm. Marty said, you're right, the movie should be black and white. So hmm. it was one of the wonderful sort of 
things that went on between the two of them after Marty resurrected my husband's films from complete oblivion. It was nice sometimes to see how Michael gave back to Marty. I was reading um, an old interview, I think, with you about the atmosphere of cutting this film. First of all, a lot of it was cut in Marty's apartment <laughs> in this tiny space. Yes, what Marty called a Euro trash building because I think the king of Italy lived there. And, uh, <laughs> and it was actually quite right across from where we're working now. Uh, uh, it's very interesting. It's called the Galleria on 57th Street. And he was way up on the oh, 30th okay. floor or something. And the editing room was across the street in what is the DGA building, across right. 57th Street. We worked at night in those days, all night, and went to sleep at dawn. Uh, not my mm. body rhythm, but <laughs> fortunately yeah. we don't do that anymore. But he just decided it would be easier to work at, uh, at his apartment. There was an extra bedroom and an extra bathroom, and that was filled with film racks. And my assistants would bring over what I needed every day and leave it at night. And then I would come in, and we would start working around 11 o'clock or midnight. And then well, I would leave things for them, and they would take them back to the editing room. Uh, so it was edited in very cramped circumstances, with Marty passionately watching films he was studying on the uh, on video. Now, apparently, time. one of the films he was studying was uh, Tales of Hoffman. Yes. And the, the great story I read about that was that he would try to go take the 16 millimeter printout at the, I guess, Museum of Modern Art. That's right. But it was always out. It was out, and, and he, he used and to get furious. Yeah. His assistant came one day and said, "You can't keep uh, Tales of Hoffman anymore because somebody else wants it." He said. This is an outrage. Who wants it? And they said, George Romero. I don't <laughs> <laughs> so they were fighting. This was the yeah. days before DVD. So they yes. here are these two great directors fighting and, uh, over. But he was also watching on television, you know, th obsessively right. uh, things over and over again, studying them, particularly Tales of Hoffman for camera movement and the movement of the actors' bodies. And uh, he's always, to this day, he's always constantly studying movies. Mm -hmm. What was the feeling about Raging Bull, when you were getting into it, you talked about just starting to work with it. I mean, what was your sort of feeling about the kind of movie you were making? You know, Marty said um, here a few weeks ago that he really felt this was going to be his last <laughs> film, that he was very frustrated after um, the yeah. commercial failure of New York, New York, and there was this idea that he was just putting everything into this yes. and that this would be it in a way. Which and he did but with Mean Streets also. I think he, he, never, oh. he never thought Mean Streets would ever see the light of day. Yeah. But yes, I, I know Marty had that feeling. The crew did, and it, it's, it's been very interesting to me over the years to see how the crew shooting the movie feel about the movie. And mm. we were all staying at the Mayflower Hotel, and uh, I would be going to work as they were staggering in from a, a long, hard day. And um, they would always say to me, ah, oh, wait a second, I don't know why we're making this movie. This man is such a monster. Why would anyone want to see this movie? Mm. But it was clear to me as I was watching the dailies why people would. And in fact, De Niro came when he went off to gain the final amount of weight that he did at the very end of the film. He came himself to see how he felt about what had been cut up to that point. He wanted to see if people cared about the character, and uh, he could feel that they did. Uh, but it was, it was uh, you know, you knew it was dare a very daring film. What we're going to do is look at a few sequences. Um, I just want to show you some of the techniques that Marty uses and some of the editing techniques, and also one of the things I'll talk a lot about is the brilliant use of sound in this movie. Our sound editor, Frank Warner, won an Oscar for Close Encounters, and he was a genius on this movie. All his ideas are extremely simple. There's nothing rocketing around the room or, you know, it's not all high-tech stuff. It's very simple stuff. It's the, uh, the sound of a drum, which he distorts sometimes. You'll hear that in this sequence. You'll hear it first normally, and then you'll hear it distorted. 
incredible, brilliant use of animal sounds, which I, I would never have thought of this, I mean, in a million years. You'll hear a couple of them here. You'll hear an elephant braying at one point, <laughs> and uh, later in another fight we're not going to see when Sugar Ray gets knocked down, you hear a, a shudder of a horse. Note the size of the ring here, because I'm going to show you in a bit another size ring. Marty had the size of the ring, and the way it was lit was determined by the emotional state of Jake LaMotta at the time. This is the first time he ever knocked down Sugar Ray. It's a big, open, sweeping ring. And I also want you to notice the use of flash bulbs, which we shot at 120 frames per second, 96 frames per second, mm. 72 frames per second, and then manipulated depending on the scene. We wanted to punctuate the moment that Sugar Ray goes through the rope. So you'll see that we manipulated the editing there a great deal. We skip frame, jump cut. But also notice an incredible camera move um, where the, the camera just swings right around 360 degrees. So why don't we just look at it. I'll talk over it a little bit because I want to point out to you some of the sound in it. In second fight, the undefeated Sugar Ray defeated Jake at Madison Square Garden last October. You can see the contrast in their style. The big, Speedy, the Ray Roberts, ring. up on his toes, the dancing master. Very difficult to do. Now he's going to go through the ropes. You can see how we jaggedly manipulated that and how the flash bulbs are punctuating that moment. Very beautiful sound. Listen to the sound here now. Very quiet. Distorted sound of people screaming. A drum distorted. Coming back up to speed. Very pure, simple uh, flash bulb sound effects. Very specially created. The undefeated Sugar Ray. His winning ways are in jeopardy. Lamada coming out Okay. We could skip okay. to the next chapter. Yeah, you can go okay. through this. Okay. I'm going to show you the elephant gray. We did a lot of freeze frames also. Marty was never quite happy with the way Sugar Ray went through the ropes, which was partially because they had to protect the actor. Um, <laughs> from killing himself. All these people were real middleweight fighters, by the way, and they were wonderful how hard they worked. Um, so we skip framed, as I said, um, sped up, slowed down, froze frames to give the moment a little more drama. Now a very different fight where Jake will lose the fight on a technicality, which he never quite understood. So Marty shot the entire sequence through. There were flames beneath the camera to give a mirage-like feeling. Um, and you descend into a pit of hell here. You'll see that every shot has kind of a, a mirage-like effect to it, which was created by the uh, flames underneath the camera. And he even went to the extent of having, when Jake LaMotta sits down in the corner, there's a rope across his eyes to emphasize again that he doesn't understand what's going on in the fight, why he lost the fight. In retrospect, he doesn't remember why he lost the fight because it was just purely a technicality. And, and uh, Marty designed the whole sequence with that in mind. And it's just very typical of how he thought about all of these fight sequences. He wanted them all to be different, and they all are. Oh. Jake LaMotta and Sugar Ray Robinson meet for the third time. So we, we these men are unique, becoming classic rivals. <laughs> 
his face. Round this seven is a beautiful device Marty came well, up with with the round chamber. Yeah, you, you hear the horse the horse sound down Wonderful as he fell down. The horse shuddering. So the, the idea is that the sounds are subjective, I assume, that the sounds take us inside Jake's yes. mind or yeah. how he's perceiving. Yeah, but uh, yeah. you know, Frank Warner uh, never repeated himself in any movie. In fact, he used to burn his own sound effects at the end. Really? Because I, th I thought he burned them so other people wouldn't use them. It turned out he burned them so he wouldn't use wow. them. <laughs> and uh, so he would come up with a completely fresh concept each time. And did he continue? Uh, you know, he worked he with us on King of Comedy. We didn't okay. really need him on King of Comedy because there wasn't this kind of an opportunity. Yeah. But uh, I, I sorely miss him. And mm. uh, I actually called him up and talked to him about Gangs of New York a bit. Mm. He's been retired for quite a while. Uh, just a, a genius. Very Middle Western, mm. okie-dokie kind of guy. But... <laughs> <laughs> with a brain like you've never, I mean, inventive and, and as I said, the simplicity of it is, is part of what's so important. Hmm. This, this sequence, um, the big uh, defeat at Sugar Ray's hands, Marty decided that uh, he wanted to recreate re, uh, the actual way the Pabst Blue Ribbon commercials were done. So we actually did it exactly the same way, including mm -hmm. seeing the hand of somebody come in and flip a card on a live television. Uh, and so we completely recreated that. He also thought that the announcer's voice from the original kinescope of the fight was so poetic that he didn't want to replace it. So we're actually using the original announcer's hmm. voice. The normal announcer in all these fights, again, was a real famous uh, fight announcer. Uh, Marty likes in, in films like this to always have real people from the world that he's filming in the films because he believes it brings great veracity. So in Casino, you have lots of actual card players and pit bosses and things. They actually uh, do it all day long. And here, as I said, everybody was, again, with the exception of a few people, real fighters. So I'm just okay. going to show you again some things about sound here and uh, manipulation of speed of the image. This is an image Marty saw the first time he ever went to see a fight. He, didn't like, he doesn't like boxing. And <laughs> um, he saw these images, which he then turned into almost religious images of uh, you'll see later um, images almost of extreme unction. Here, he's just putting Vaseline. That, that's actually Jake LaMotta's real handler, that mm. man with the white hair. The way he's um, putting, touching Jake uh, evokes religious imagery. Now, the next time that friendly bartender says, what do you have? <laughs> now, watch. That the whole world see that? Now you'll see a lot of manipulation of film and um, speed and lighting here. This is the original announcer. That great action by Lamotta, he couldn't score the big one. That's it, that was the last shot. Round number 13, the hard luck number. Marty loved that. And I think you know both the boys. He loved that line too, I think you know both the boys. And, uh, <laughs> 
Beautiful use of slow motion here. De Niro used to turn around like hundreds of times before a shot like that to get himself dizzy and exhausted. Um, and he was so amazingly patient during this incredible montage. Marty's shot a ton of footage for this sequence. Now notice, one of the things Frank Water told us was silence can sometimes be more powerful than, than sound. So you'll see in a moment that the camera will ramp down in speed and the light will automatically go down as that happens. Now here it goes. Camera's ramping down in speed. Light is going darker. You can't hear very well here, but these are animal noises breathing. Very faint use of a drum. Now the camera's going to ramp back up to speed again as he comes in for the hit. All of these, this amazing sequence, De Niro just, for weeks, was just hit in the head. There was no hand in the head, in, in the glove. Um, but he was hit on the left side, he was hit on the right side. There were uh, appliances spurting things out uh, constantly. I mean, he was so devoted. One of the key things for us was to figure out where to put Vicky. And she was the sort of uh, emotional linchpin of it, of it all. Listen to the sound here. See the quiet? And then all hell breaks loose again. The camera's ramping up to speed here. So that was a very critical edit for us deciding to put Vicky looking up at that very moment. No man can enjoy this The fight has stopped on. This took weeks to shoot each one of these shots, um, and, and De Niro was just incredibly patient about it all. Now, he would have turned around, as I told you, about a hundred times in order to get himself in this state. And it's it shot slow motion. He's not in sync, but we put the words in his mouth anyway. And this last shot, which ends up on the blood on the ropes is actually one of the images that Marty saw the first time he ever went to a fight uh, for this film to study how to do it. Um, and uh, he actually saw the blood dripping from the rope. So that image and the, the blood on the sponge in the bucket were two of the key things he brought to the fight. And then we'll get up in the ring, join with the radio audience throughout the world, and have a brief interview with Ray Robinson. You hear the, now we're for the, the sound of the flash bulbs always, the theme in the and movie. That whole montage was storyboarded by Marty, but Eventually, as we were editing it, we just started violating the storyboards and going with whatever worked emotionally and rhythmically, and uh, even put a shot upside down. And, but again, the devotion of the crew and, and uh, De Niro to the making of that sequence is amazing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you've talked a lot about Marty as somebody who conceives editing from the very beginning. I mean, I, I just saw a documentary about the making of Gangs of New York where he's on the set talking to his production designer and he's explaining how certain edits are going to work yeah. to the production designer. 
Uh, so I'm just wondering sort of what the working relationship is like. I mean, editing seems to be in his mind from a very, very yeah. early stage. Yeah. Editing <laughs> is, his, is his favorite part of filmmaking, and he's, he's a great editor. He cut Mean Streets himself. It's his favorite part of filmmaking, I think, because it's more controllable, whereas when he's on a set and the sun's going down and the actor is sick and uh, the producer's eyeballs are rolling with $10,000 every minute, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, he hates working that way. <laughs> Everybody does. But uh, in the editing room, he can finally sit down and concentrate and think clearly. But he does always have an editing concept for each one of the movies before he even starts to write, co-write. He, as he's conceiving of the film, He's thinking like an editor, which is wonderful for me. Uh, a lot of editors find themselves working with footage that's not very well directed, and they feel they have to sort of save it. That's never my situation. Um, so Marty loves to be in the editing room and participate in all the decisions that are made. I mean, if you have 15 great takes from Robert De Niro, I would think you would want to be in the room to participate in that decision. Sometimes I work by myself. Sometimes we work together. As it's gone on in years, I tend to work more by myself and I prepare things for him. With digital editing, I can prepare a lot of uh, versions, which is very different from the way I used to work in film. If I wanted to prepare a different version, I would have to show him that version first and he would have to walk around for a while while I undid it and, <laughs> and did it again on film a different way. And then I, if he didn't like that, I'd have to put it back. But now I just prepare maybe as many as six versions digitally so that when he comes in, I can show him all of those and he can pick and choose. He talks to me constantly during dailies about what he feels about the footage, which is very important for me. And I, I start to then build my work from his feelings about what take he likes or, you know, sometimes he'll say to me, don't ever show me it again, burn that. He also has never lost the ability to react to film as a viewer, which is wonderful. Sometimes he'll just burst out laughing at something wonderful an actor has done. Uh, that, that's very refreshing, and uh, it's, it's lovely he's never lost that. In fact, he said he learned most of what he knows about filmmaking from sitting with his teenage friends watching movies and where they laughed and where they didn't. Laughed in a wrong way, I mean. Um, they didn't believe something. And so uh, editing is, is very critical for him. It's, it's wonderful to work in tandem with him. <laughs> So what do you think you bring to the equation? Because obviously he likes working with you. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm a completely different temperament than his. He's very volatile and emotional, and I'm much more uh, stable and calm. <laughs> <laughs> and that helps a lot, because many artists are that way. I've, I've had the great privilege of being around a lot of them, and, and they are. You know, I mean, the reason they're such great artists is because they're sort of raw nerves. Mm -hmm. Things impact them differently than they impact a lot of us. And so that's to be expected. But it does help that I'm not the same way, <laughs> I think. Um, editing requires a tremendous amount of patience and extremely hard work. And so I bring that to it. And I'm also a fresh eye uh, for him. I look at the film. One of the reasons I don't like to go to the set, I love to go to the set to watch the actors and, and Marty work and the crew work. But it does prejudice my eye. So if someone, you go to the set and somebody says to you, oh, wait till you see this tracking shot. We just mm. laid, you know, 200 feet of track. And <laughs> it's going to be incredible. And we're going to, I would much rather go to dailies and see it cold and see if it works for me, because that's what Marty wants to know from me. Does it work? But, you know, I, I can't really talk fully about what I bring to Right, <laughs> right. Well, that's, okay. You know, you've s often said that you think you won the Academy Award in this film because of the fight scenes. Yes. But the n in the non-fight scenes, uh, one of the great things about the film is, is a lot of the scenes run long because a lot of the film is just about 
discomfort between people and sort of painful, yes. tense scenes. So I, don't, I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of those, your approach yeah, well to some of these sort of longer ac scenes. Actually, the w it was very good that I had begun in documentaries when I edited this film because I was used to having to create a film from raw footage. And what happens when you have improvisers like De Niro and Pesci who are just unbelievable yeah. together, the way they work. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. Pesci was a much less experienced actor. Bob was working as hard for Pesci off screen, feeding him lines and repeating. And Marty would just look at him and say, do it again, do it again. And they, he would just repeat and repeat for Pesci, you know, really working hard. Bob is, is extremely generous towards other actors. But the improvisations they came up with were sometimes very difficult to cut because if one of them went off on some great tangent, I didn't have the other person covered on camera. Marty always likes to shoot, if he can, a, a heavily improvised scene with two cameras for that reason. But some of the locations up in the Bronx and things were, were too small to get two cameras in. So I had to really struggle with some of the scenes, my favorite being the uh, fight where De Niro is talked into fighting De Niro. And he keeps asking, why do I have to fight him? Why do I tell me again, tell me again. Which is based on Marty's conversations with his agent whenever they tell him a deal. They, you know, there's this, this many points for that. And he always says, right. I don't get it. Tell me again, tell me again. So, and so, yeah, if you win, you win. If you lose, you win. You win, you win, you lose, you win. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the problems of cutting the scene were also being accentuated by the fact that the, the children in the, in the scene were causing a lot of problems, of course. Bob was being very patient with this little child on his lap who kept interrupting every take almost. There were planes flying overhead. It was terribly hot. So it, it just took me a long, long time. Marty gave up and just left. And I, it took me a very, very long time to pull it out, I hope so that you didn't notice <laughs> too much. But it's a great, it's, it's tremendous fun to be working with something like that, something completely raw. Also, uh, the, the heard some things scene, you know, the famous scene where he's fixing the television set. Yeah. And that scene also was just a joy to work on. And uh, I think Bob actually just came to the epitome of becoming Jake. He was Jake uh, in that scene when he stands in front of Joe and questions him. I've just never seen anything like the look in his eyes, the body language. He, he was just extraordinary in that scene. And that was a tremendous amount of fun to cut. Again, tremendous amount of improvisation and planes flying overhead. And so the actors have to stop. And, you know, it creates a lot of problems, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Now, I heard that there was a very long editing period for this film. So how, could you remember how long you spent um, cutting Almost this? two years. Two um, years, wow. Yeah, and Goodfellas took almost two years. Some films just require it, you know. I yeah. don't know why everybody's so surprised by this. They yeah. seem to be. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at a film like Gangs of New York, it's an enormous epic film. Two hours and 38 minutes long without the credits. And, yeah. you know, major battle scenes, riots. Uh, it's, it's a huge film. So uh, if you want to do it right, you need the time to do it. The reason mainly this film took so long was because De Niro was gaining weight in between. So we shot all of his scenes at his perfect middle weight and then he went off and ate, and then we edited, and then we shot again at his middle fat weight, and then um, we stopped. He went off and ate again, ate his way through France, I think. So we kept on editing in between. I think that partially delayed it, but it was yeah. also a very intricate film, you know. Every yeah. cut just meant so much to us, and it took a lot of time in the mix for it. The sound mix was uh, very, very slow because Marty wanted to create a incredibly complex tapestry. And I remember the producer took us outside after the first day and he said, you can't 
mix this film inch by inch. And Marty said, well, that's the way it's going to be mixed. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, and it was. Um, the use of music much more subtle than in Goodfellas, for example, because that's the way Marty heard the music, usually coming through tenement windows. Uh, then in Goodfellas, of course, everybody had stereos by then, and, and <laughs> the, the music is blasting more. We, we did, by the way, all the, De Niro, in his heaviest weight as the nightclub owner, Schrader had written the film to have a lot of flashbacks in it, De Niro commenting on his life. But we put it together that way, and Mar only Marty and I went to screen it. And we came out and we said, my God, I mean, <laughs> the film is so overpowering. We don't need those comments. It, it will work by itself. So we stripped them all out. This happens all the time in editing. Sometimes people think, oh, that's the writer's fault. It's not. The, this kind of restructuring, a dramatic changing of things occurs all the time. So we just stripped them all out and only used a little bit of it when he was actually in the nightclub at the end. How difficult is it to recapture the experience of when you first see a take? Because you spend so many times watching it. That's the a takes. very important question because when you are a filmmaker, you, you see the film so many times that you can lose the initial impact of it. So one of the things that happens in dailies is that I remember what I thought when I first saw it. When we screen, all you need is one person in the room. It could be anybody. The janitor could come in. And you are beginning to see the film through their eyes. You notice when they get restless. Uh, you hear where they laugh. You see if they're riveted to the screen or not. And so it, it, it really is screenings that help us re-achieve what we originally felt. I do take very careful notes, you know, so that I, I remember. And now with digital editing, one of the problems is that we're working on a, on a rather degraded image. They have to compress the information so that we can get a lot of information into the towers that store our footage. And we're not always looking at the best possible image. I remember after Casino, I was looking at the film on a flatbed. Uh, it was a finished print. And I saw something in De Niro's eyes that I'd never seen before. And I was very sad about that. Mm. Um, it didn't mean I would have edited it differently, but I was upset that I wasn't seeing it. Previews that we have to, were forced to go through by the studio, they say for marketing reasons, but we know really it's also a, a way to get us to look at the film in a very brutal way because an audience has not been prepared. They haven't heard actors talking about the movie. They haven't uh, seen ads for it. They haven't read articles about it. So they're brought in off the street. The film is not finished. The splices are jumping. It's very painful for filmmakers, but you learn a lot because you're seeing 400 people react to the movie. And it, it, painful as it is, it's very helpful. Did you have to go through that with Raging Bull? Did you have test screenings? Raging Bull would never have been released if we'd had to do <laughs> it. No, I mean it. Yeah. I mean it because it was such a out there film yeah. that I think, uh, you know, the trade reviews were terrible when it first came out. I remember being in the lab checking prints with Marty and the first reviews came out from the Hollywood Reporter and Variety and they, they advised distributors not to book the movie. It was devastating and the reviews were not good. It took 10 yeah. years before this film found its... Yeah, I think people forget that sometimes because now a lot of people say this is the best film of the 80s. I mean, yeah. you see this constantly and that, but it, it took a while to get to that point. Yes, it didn't make much money yeah. and... Uh, but this happens a lot with Marty's movies. It often takes 10 years for them to be recognized. And, you know, Casino, when it came out, was very badly reviewed. And, and now everyone's saying it's the most ignored film or <laughs> of the decade, you know. So it's just the way it is. But literally, I do think if we'd ever had to preview it, it would never have been released. Well, is there one that you're particularly proud of that you, that you think hasn't been accepted yet that will in time? 
Well, I think Kundun and bringing yeah. out the dead, I, I don't quite understand. Um, mm -hmm. I can sort of understand Kundun. It's a very uh, special subject. But bringing out the dead with its theme of compassion, it's odd to me that that didn't resonate. I think it will eventually. Mm. Uh, it's got tremendous humor in it and veracity, but somehow it just didn't, uh, people didn't like it. I don't mm. know. Okay, how much can you actually influence Marty? Well, what happens is the, have film, the film does it. Uh, we both see it right away. I mean, I can't tell you how much a film changes sometimes from his original conception. Not the overall conception of style, you know, which is very important, but almost everything gets drastically changed. And we do it all together. You know, it's not a battle or anything. Um, some editor-director relationships are like that, and that's very tragic. I've seen that happen. It's, it's a terrible situation. But in the process of, of editing the scene, things change dramatically. And uh, Marty's the first to see when it needs to be done. When the song credits at the end, a lot of titles are listed. They're, they're probably very, very quiet. As I said, sometimes, because in those days, at that period of history, Marty felt that music was just being heard from radios, from other people's apartments and things. So sometimes it's very, very subtle. It's a beautiful selection of, of music. We're hoping to get uh, a soundtrack album made from it, but at the time, it was too expensive to make because there's Bing Crosby and all kinds of people, but I think now there, there's some possibility it will be made into okay. an album. Yeah. When do that's you bring music? At what point is it incorporated? That's a very good question because Marty's one of the great users of music in yeah. movies, and in many cases he's already thought of some of the most essential music. The Mascagni music, which is the theme, the very sad Italian music, Marty knew right away from the beginning he was going to use that music. We started right away with it over the main title and then kept incorporating it at very significant moments. For example, when he goes into that amazing Steadicam shot as he enters the ring for the championship fight. And then there are many times when he will actually shoot scenes to music. For example, uh, use of Layla in uh, Goodfellas where he, De Niro is wiping out a bunch of people and there's a, a, a montage of them being found dead and that was all conceived of and shot to Layla. In fact, he was just obsessive that I get it when I was cutting it to the exact frame, uh, similar to the way that he had shot it on the set. And in Gangs of New York, there are several pieces of music like that. So music is a very important part of Marty's life. He never travels anywhere on a plane or anywhere without mm -hmm. listening to music. And he will carry around in his head for years a piece of music that he's been trying to put into a movie. And then suddenly the movie will come along and there it'll be. He remembers when he first heard every piece of music. He was three years old standing next to his mother in the sausage store. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, he has an amazing memory. So it's very critical. What'll happen, for example, with Casino, he knew he wanted to use the Bach at the beginning for the explosion and the main titles. Mm. He had five songs that he thought we would try for this scene, maybe three for that scene, and we would listen together and decide as we went. After the scene was sometimes cut, we would then put the music in. But in Gangs of New York, there are several sequences which were shot, again, to music that he knew he was going to use. You did this in Who's That Knocking at My Door? I mean, that was one of the early films to use yes. rock music. And, and, and Mean Streets, of course, was the big yeah. breakthrough. Yeah. So how does he decide what film he's going to make next? Well, you know, Marty hates to be what he calls a director for hire, uh, which is that a project uh, that he didn't dream of or, or wasn't deeply committed to is brought to him, and, and he makes it. Now, he did that once on Cape Fear, and it I've never seen him so angry in my life. He was angry throughout the whole making huh. of that movie. He did not want to make it. Uh, he and Spielberg switched projects. He thought someone Jewish should make Schindler's List. He wrote the script for Schindler's List with Steve Zalian, Marty, and it was supposed to be De Niro playing the character. 
but they decided for many reasons to, to switch. So he felt it wasn't something coming from his heart, you know, in his stomach. In every case possible, he makes something that he really, really wants to or has been dreaming of for a long time, like Gangs of New York, or something will be brought to him, like our next movie uh, was brought to him, and he loved the idea immediately and then plunged into it. But he, he just can't be a director for hire. You know, it, it's, uh, it's very hard for him. Does he always jump into a new project so that nobody can steal you away? To, to, I wonder if oh. directors, <laughs> directors must try to get you to... Um, yeah, they do, but he doesn't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I think he's, I mean, the work I do with him is, is so incredible. It, it's so rewarding. I, I love working for him, so he doesn't have to worry about that. Anyway, <laughs> we're always doing these documentaries in between, so right. I never... four-hour long documentaries. I never even get a vacation, yeah. But so you did get to do Grace in My Heart. I mean, you did get to do... Yes, yeah, so he was Angel. producing that, and that needed right. re-editing, and he asked me if I would jump in, and I had to go back to film for that, and I found I rather enjoyed it. Oh, back to film from digital. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it was funny, because I found soon, after about a week or so, I was enjoying flipping the trims into the bin, because I always used huh. to know how to do that. You know, you have to do it a certain way, so it'll the end of it will get in, and I, I said, huh. gosh, I'm, I'm more, it took no time, I was back, I, I, <laughs> I, could, I can go either way, I mean, there are advantages to both. The transition from film to digital, which I guess was yeah. Casino, the transition film? It was Casino, film? yeah, I was very resistant, I was very bad about it, and <laughs> Marty urged because he thought maybe it would make it faster, I don't, frankly, I don't think it does, it's also very expensive, but it's the future and there's no going back. So I had, fortunately, a wonderful assistant who trained me, who was actually a Lightworks trainer. I work on Lightworks, not Avid. And he trained me, and I was very, very bad student for a while, mm. for about a week, um, <laughs> grumpy, and, oh, well, on film we could do this. And, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was very bad, and then one day I just clicked in, and I was off. The, my big objection to it, as I'd already said, is the compression of the visual image. I, I think it's very dangerous for us to be looking at such a bad image. And I hear from other people who don't have the luxury of printing up their dailies, because now the big thing is that they want you just not to print your dailies up at all, so you never see them on the screen until the film is completely finished, which I think is terrible. I, I hope I'm not going to be forced into doing that. But I've heard from a lot of editors that they discover things when they see the cut negative, first print off the cut negative, they see things that are problems because they can't see them in the digital image, and um, that's how bad it is, what we're doing. You know, that, That's my only objection to it. The directors don't like it because they don't get time to think anymore. When Marty used to walk around, if I was taking the film apart to make a new version, he, was, he would be thinking, and sometimes he liked sitting, he tells me now, I never knew this, watching me go back and forth, and he would be reviewing the footage in his mind, and thoughts would come to him. Now I just do it in a second, and he doesn't <laughs> get the chance. And I also jump from cut to cut, because on the timeline, the digital timeline, I see that, you know, I want to jump 20 cuts down. I just keep hitting the button, and it jumps from cut to cut. He only gets one frame of that image in his mind. It drives him completely mad because he's trying to cope with each one of them. I'm not because I'm looking at the timeline. I'm not looking at the monitor. And uh, I've heard from Robert Altman also that, that uh, he has a lot of problems with it, again, for those reasons. They feel somewhat removed from the film. Marty used to be able to work cut on a chem or on even on a moviola, which he was famous for breaking. <laughs> um, and now he can't do it, and it drives him mad. It really, I he keep trying know, to train him. He doesn't know how to him. use the machine. Yeah, yeah. I keep trying to try. Some, some directors, you know, I mean, Jim Cameron and yeah. people like that, they cut their own movies. And, uh, but Marty still hasn't learned to do it, and, and he wants to, but it would take some time and patience. And, of course, he never has any time anymore. So. Did you ever think how Raging Bull might be different if you cut that digitally? 
That's a very interesting question because yeah. I think there might have been something kinetic that was happening when we were doing those montages that I'm not sure would have worked quite the same way. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, th this is about the color palettes. Yeah. You saw Heat and Casino on the same day. So, wow, that's a pretty good day. The question about the difference, about the color saturation and how mm. Casino was mu had much mm. more spectrum of color. Well, I think it's just because it was Las Vegas, and Las Vegas yeah. is the epitome of that kind of color. But there, I've talked a lot of it with David about seeing the costumes that De Niro wore. One of my favorite things during that uh, film was watching what the next combination of shirt, tie, and pants was going to be. <laughs> and uh, during dailies with De Niro, because I usually look at them with him alone because Marty's shooting, and he usually comes during the day, I was witness to his assistant bringing him the various watches and rings and cufflinks and things that would match whatever outrageous outfit he was wearing that day and how carefully he selected the backing for the watch you know if it was going to be maroon if he was wearing a maroon tie did yeah. he want to have a maroon backing for the watch or something all the, the attention he put into the costuming is is very critical and it's what makes him so part of what makes him so believable you know he works very hard at this kind of thing and it was fun to watch it, and I, I love seeing all those wild outfits, and I was glad to yeah. see you had the turquoise shoes <laughs> here. Though. I hope you all know we have a Robert De Niro costume exhibit upstairs, and there's a great display from Casino, so you should definitely see that if you haven't. There used to be a great deal of time spent in the trailer every morning yeah. deciding what, between Marty and Bob, deciding what the color combination was going to be for the day, because yeah. the real Frank, the, the character was based on, dressed like that and was obsessive about clothes. And hmm. Yeah. Okay, oh. gangs. Well, the understanding was that gangs was in the can to be released, and how different is the gangs that is coming out in December <laughs> no, 2002? No, we, we worked on it right up to the end. No, it was in no way ready last year. I mean, Harvey Weinstein was so excited about it that he wanted to release it at Christmas, and he want you know he was very competitive about the Oscars, and he really wanted us to be in the race for that. But I I told him in Chinichita when we were shooting, there's no way we can be ready. But he just didn't believe us. And so he led people to think that it was going to be ready, but it was nowhere near ready. When you see it, you'll see it's a massive film and required a great deal of, for example, just simple things that you, you wouldn't think about. They were all Italian extras, and they mainly had to be told not to speak because if they spoke, it would sound like a bunch of Italian babble, and we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't have that for 1860 New York. So I had to replace all of those voices. I, had, I spent long periods of time in England recording English and uh, Irish actors to replace the voices. So it, it's a huge movie, and it yeah. just took a certain amount of time to edit. My first reaction after seeing it was, how did they make that for only $120 million? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, a lot of people have been saying, oh, yeah. we see why it took so long, which is very, thank yeah. God for that, because there's been so much erroneous negative talk about it. Editing certainly is, is, is a mysterious thing, and I think it's finally beginning to be appreciated for the importance it brings to films. I think it, it's, it, it's a mysterious craft. It's much easier to understand lighting or camera work or acting and I don't think many people really understand directing but you'd have to be in the editing room for months at a time to really understand how a particular film is shaped and of course it would be very boring and so people don't do it but I think even studio heads I've noticed recently have a lot more respect for editors than they used to. They used to be the person they never even spoke to at screenings when we would fly out and bring the film for them to see but now more and more they're being recognized Okay, more questions? Um, we'll go over here. 
just the idea that good editing is supposed to be invisible, and how, yeah. and how do you feel about that? That's a somewhat, I think, old-fashioned idea, and it, but it's still persistent. It, it still hangs around. Marty and I have always been, from the very early days, interested in slapping the audience in the face a little bit at times. Not always. There are times when you do want it to be invisible, really. But he always loved jump cuts, and uh, he always loved Eisenstein and Pudovkin editing, and there's a great deal of that in gangs, by the way. Um, he actually had me study sequences that he was particularly influenced by when we cut the battle scenes, and um, we tried very hard to give that kind of feeling to them. So we're sort of exponents of the opposite idea, but there are a lot of people in Hollywood who really still feel that way. I remember once after uh, I was nominated for Goodfellas and Dances with Wolves won, I think, is, I think yeah, that year, right? right. And the editor of it came up to me afterwards and he said, we were all waiting, getting our coats and things, and he said to me, I want to ask you something. Why did you make that jump cut in, you know, that th there was a mismatch. I think there was a cigar in Paul Servino's hand in one take, and the next time I got back to him, it wasn't there. And I said, well, we do that all the time. <laughs> and it was because... It was an improvisation with an unskilled actor who was fantastic, the guy who played Sonny, who Marty saw on a cable show at some point and said, get that guy for the part. And uh, it was more important to use the best delivery of both people. And I knew that he didn't have the cigar in the hand, but it was more, but we do that all the time. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it, we're, we're sort of the antithesis of what you're saying. Did you feel you were breaking a lot of rules at Raging Bull? Yes. Yeah. 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 But you know, the design of those fight sequences was extraordinary. I, the, even though that final montage we just saw did get heavily re-edited, uh, some of the shorter fights, uh, the Dotuil fight and even the Sedan fight to a certain extent, were thought out so carefully by Marty. He knew they had to be quick, and he designed really dramatic camera moves, which are extremely hard to get when you have, you're inside a ring. One of the things he, he saw every movie made about fighting before he, he made Raging Bull, and the one decision he made was to be in the ring. A lot of films have been photographed from outside, or for example, Rocky, they would put five cameras, and the editor would then take those five cameras and put something together. Marty wanted to be in the ring, so if you have a camera crew and a crane in the ring and a referee and two fighters, it's extremely difficult to do. That's why Raging Bull took so long to shoot. But the reason is because you get these extraordinary camera moves, some of them which are, they drive the entire fight, you know, the, the shorter fights. So they were extremely well thought out, and in many of the cases just put together exactly as he originally yeah. intended. But I was also thinking just in terms of creating sympathy for the character and mm -hmm. those sort of things, the last scene, the, um, the Brando speech mm -hmm. I read, was done a, a lot of different ways, was acted a That's lot right. of different ways. That's right, because when, you know, when Marty and De Niro work together, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. In fact, it was supposed to be a Shakespeare, again, another Shakespeare speech. You know the film opens with a, a speech from Richard III, but uh, they were going to do a, a Shakespeare speech at the end, and my husband said to them, absolutely not, you cannot do mm. that. You have to do something from American culture. So they chose the On the Waterfront speech. And De Niro and Marty talked a great deal about it, and they wanted to experiment with how warm, how emotional Jake should be in that. So they did 15 takes. De Niro and I sort of liked one that was a little bit more emotional, but Marty was adamant. He said, no, he has to be very cold when he confronts himself in the mirror there. And we screened it actually two ways. We, we screened one morning with one take in, and that the afternoon with another take in, and uh, he was right, as always. <laughs> but that you can imagine what it's like to be working with footage like that, where you have a brilliant actor, 
brilliant director, and they give you 15 takes, each one of which is completely different and uh, valid, each one of them valid. What was it like editing Kathy Moriarty, who was the first, this was her first Oh, she was so, she was such a wonderful, movie. raw yeah. talent, and De Niro again and Pesci were so great with her. They loved her and they were so supportive. That's why Marty loved her, was her rawness, so mm -hmm. there was never any question of trying to tone down her accent or, or anything. She actually was terrific. I yeah. mean, she yeah. was just a natural, yeah. Who are some of the editors that you admire? Kurosawa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are so many. Um, I tend to think more about directors in some of the earlier films that I admire so much, and I don't know much about the editors, and I, so it's a little hard for me to know who did what. It's very hard for anyone to know who did what on a movie, unless you're there every day. But I know that Kurosawa cut all his own films, and, and the editing of some of them is extremely striking. Yeah. Can you tell us something about Haig Mnuchin, who's, uh, met, who's of course, yeah. the film is dedicated to? Because you, yeah. you had not as much time with as Marty at NYU. But no. Can you but tell Haig, anything about Haig his was, influence? Yeah, he was very important. Of course, he was one of the people who got, who's that knocking made. But Haig was this wild Armenian. He was American, but he was from Armenian uh, descent. And when I first went down for the summer course, I heard this man screaming. out. I got there late. And I heard this man screaming inside the lecture hall, and I thought, my God, I better not go in. It turned out that was just his normal delivery. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was fantastic. It was very interesting. He and Marty used to argue all the time about the films that Marty wanted to make. And Haig was often trying to encourage Marty to be a little more conventional, and Marty would argue with mm -hmm. him at great length. But in the process of arguing with him, he would f come to formulate what he really wanted to do much better. And they had some quite notorious fights. But I remember many times Haig coming in when we were all, we'd all been up all night editing and we were exhausted and he would just come in the room and just pick us all up and get us going again. He was a phenomenon and Marty so wanted to show him this picture to prove to him because Haig was never really sure about some of the other movies Marty made. <laughs> and he said he, this was the one he thought maybe Haig would understand. Hmm. And when he died during the making of it, it was very sad. How can you deal with working materi with material that is very brutal and violent? How do you mm -hmm. detach yourself and how do you... Yeah. It's a difficult question because, you see, the thing is that it's not very brutal when I first start working with it. <laughs> you know, the, none of these fighters are hitting each other. The trick was to get the best camera angle and, you know, sometimes the, each take, they would be better, the miss would be so close that you didn't see it. So, in fact, part of my job is to make it more violent. So for me, it's, it's not really believable in the same way that, but I know as time goes on, I become more and more aware as I'm working on the film of the impact of it on people. But I do think that Marty is one of the people who uses violence in the correct way. Gangs of New York is a great deal about the futility of violence. I think he felt it was his job in a way to portray what he grew up with and to show people the good side, the fun side of it, and the terrible side of it. I think when he uses violence, it's never gratuitous. It's always very powerful and upsetting, but correct. There may be others who disagree with that, but... Um, and, and he really did want to make the point in gangs about the futility of violence, which I think he has done. Hmm. Okay, where do you come in in a project? At one point, do you start your involvement? Right. I, I come in just as it starts shooting. There have been a couple of occasions where he's asked me to screen things with him are, I mean, we do screen things just for pleasure a lot, but I'm not needed during the research or the writing period. So I come on the first day of shooting. Uh, so I'm not involved. Some editors are, but I'm not. 
The home movie sequences where they shot in Super 8? Right. The, actually, Jake LaMotta's own home movies were 16 millimeter, mm -hmm. and that was quite rare in the time. And Marty's always said that Jake LaMotta's home movies are a better movie than Raging Bull. And they studied them a lot because you could see in the smiling faces of everybody as things were disintegrating. Uh. You know? <laughs> um, and so Marty was determined to reproduce them as well as he could. But we did shoot them in 35. I always said to him his mother should have shot them because the head framing is still a little bit too good for amateur photography. But uh, we had so uh. much fun cutting that sequence because we, we could just do anything. And we did it actually to that piece of music, the Muscogee music, and we did it in a f sort of fever in one night, and we never changed it. It's the first mm. time that's ever happened. It was just perfect. And then we went back and did cut in flash frames, and we, we had a lot of fun picking the colored flash frames and things. And then Marty personally scratched it because he, he wanted it to be scratched. I'll never forget the negative cutter who pride themselves on, you know, at Technicolor Labs in L.A., they never scratch anything. They'd kill themselves if they did, and he came in and he said, "Do you have a hanger?" And he just <laughs> he, he just took a hanger and raked it, and then we well. degraded it and desaturated the color so that it would look faded. The the worst thing that ever you know we always say the projectionist is the final editor. In those days, I would used to go to all the theaters and check the sound. Right. And you, you can't do it anymore. You but can't do uh, all three thousand now, right? Right. Yeah. And um, so I was in a theater in New Jersey checking the sound and. I went up in the booth and talked to the projectionist to make sure his Dolby switch was on. And he was carefully taking out the home movies. And he said to me, the lab made it. I said, what are you doing? It was spooling onto the floor. And he said, uh, oh, the lab made a mistake. They cut a color sequence into this movie, and I'm taking it out for you. So <laughs> it was a, we actually shot on, on, we shot on color stock all the sequences that have color in them, the opening title sequence, Raging Bull is in color. And we hot spliced the prints together, not a great idea. So we actually were using color stock and black and white stock, because at that point it was sort of hard to achieve real black and white on color. Now they can do it much better, certainly digitally, they can do it perfectly. They brought an old timer, literally an old timer mm -hmm. timer, back to, to Technicolor to time the film for us, because nobody knew how to do it anymore. And he was great. His name was Jim Henry, and he was this really eccentric character. I always used to come in with a hat with a lot of fishing lure on it. And uh, he used to sit next to Marty and just, <laughs> what do you think of that, huh? What do you think of <laughs> he, was, he was so great. I loved him. And he, he gave us that beautiful, beautiful look. You know, uh, it was. Wow. I guess, how do you deal with the fact these films are going to be edited and shortened for television? Well, I, I did create the. Uh, TV version of Raging Bull, and I decided after that never to do it again. This is kind of like disassembling something you'd made. It was a lot of fun watching De Niro and Pesci come up with alternative lines. Uh, <laughs> schlong, did you schlong my wife? I think was one of the, the, <laughs> the Bob, Bob came up with. So that was a tremendous amount of fun. But I decided never to do it again. So what we do is we get we get a list from the network or the studio, and they say we have to do it. And then I just fight them on every one. I just wear them out. I lose usually, but we just fight them. We say, no, 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 can't we keep that? And Or we try and find another way around editing it than they did. But it, it's horrible. It's just horrible. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for taking this trip back to your past when you've got gangs opening so soon.
Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.